0: two of the Mixtape with Scott. This is episode three. We have a great interview today, but before I introduce our guest, uh, we have to go through our liturgy about the role of stories in our lives. Uh, please don't fall asleep in church as I say this. Each week, I'm going to read you a line from a great book by Sue Johnson entitled Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love as it embodies what I'm about and what this show is about. We use stories to make sense of our lives, and we use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories, and then stories shape us. The Mixtape with Scott is a podcast devoted to hearing the personal stories of economists, scientists, and authors. And as you listen with open hearts and open minds to these people's stories, my hope is that you will hear echoes of your own story, that you will feel a connection to the interviewees and come away with a new story that helps you and me make sense of our lives and maybe even give us a model to help us navigate the future as well. So with that said, let me give you a warm introduction to one of my favorite economists around anywhere, Dr. Beatrice Sherrier. They don't make them like Beatrice anymore, literally, because she's a historian of economic thought. And over time, that's sadly become a smaller and smaller part of uh, contemporary economists edification and their readings. And yet, if we were to believe Dr. Sue Johnson that I just said, we need the stories of economists and we need the story of economics in order to make sense of the field that we're in right now and to make sense of ourselves in that field and the other people that are in it. So I'm proud to call Beatrice a friend. I appreciated her willingness to be on the podcast. I wanted to thank her for that. And so this is season two. Of the mixtape with Scott, and I'm your host, uh Scott Cunningham. Okay, well, this is a real pleasure um to talk to someone that over the years I've gotten to really enjoy uh getting to know. Um Beatrice Cherry how do you how do you pronounce your last name, Beatrice? sherry Sherry. Okay, Beatrice Sherry. Beatrice, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you for the sake of the listener uh say your your name and what your job title is and and where you where you work right now?
1: Yes, so I'm Beatrice Cherrier. That's how you say in French. Uh I'm a CNRS uh researcher. So the CNRS is the uh biggest research organization in France covering all social science, hard science and humanities. Mm-hmm. And I'm an associate professor at polytechnique which is one of uh France's foremost engineering school that mm-hmm. have a long train of teaching and researching economics alongside mm-hmm. engineering and physics.
0: Oh, okay. Are Which city are you in? Did you say Paris? Sorry? Did you say you were in Paris?
1: Uh, in the Paris, in the south of Paris. Yes.
0: South of Paris. Well,
1: have, in the Parisian area.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Okay great. Is that like in the city or is that kind of oh, outside?
1: No, it's 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 interesting. It's it, they like in the past 30 years uh France tried to move most of its big schools uh um outside of Paris itself. Uh so Polytechnique is on uh, in the south of Paris on a big area of land called uh, Plateau de Saclay. and basically they are trying to build a sort of you know technological cluster here. Mm. So they have a lot of higher school like Polytechnique, Telecom Paris, uh, um, like agricultural schools, or so. there is a lot of uh, research unit by large companies who, who are building uh, headquarters here as well. Oh, so okay. it's like out of Paris, big lands, tons of building getting out of uh, the land in the past years.
0: Oh, okay, is it expensive where you're living?
1: Uh, I don't live nearby. Well, Paris area is always more expensive than uh, in the countryside, but oh, okay. uh, less than in Paris.
0: Oh, okay, okay, cool. So, um, so where did you grow up?
1: But sorry, the connection is not really good. Can you repeat? Uh, sorry. Where
0: did you Where did you grow up?
1: Um. So I grew up a bit all over the place. My parents were moving a lot. I'm from Corsica, which is an island south of uh, France, in the, in between France and Italy. But we were like essentially moving around in France every three years.
2: Mm. Uh
1: basically. basically, so south, north, east, west, uh, mm. every area
0: oh okay okay did you have any siblings
1: oh yeah i got two brothers and one sisters
0: oh okay okay what did your parents do for a living
1: uh so my 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 father is an engineer uh was right now and my mother is a sculptor oh so that's but she stopped to raise uh her four kids for a
0: and you grew up. Did you say that you grew up sort of in the countryside also around France? Or did you say you grew up in the city?
1: Oh God, the connection is really, really bad. I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. Um so I I uh I grew up I partly in the Paris area, in Paris, uh, partly in various uh part of the countryside in the south of France. Uh so I'm more a countryside person. I did most of my career. I moved to Polytechnique two years ago. Hmm. In most of my career, in and in, in the countryside as well. Oh, okay,
0: okay. Well, so what were some of your favorite things to do as a family when you were little?
1: Um. Well, I don't. I don't really know. Uh, I don't think I had huge preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I don't remember I was especially keen about history at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a bit of philosophy. I majored in physics in high school, mm. uh, so experimental physics. Maybe I was doing a lot of music. I, don't, I I mean I think you you could interest me in any topics already when I was a kid.
0: Okay. Okay. No,
1: no sharp preference.
0: Did you have an early experience in high school uh, where you were learned about economics?
1: And no, that's that's an interesting thing. Uh, so I take a single course in economics in high school and then out of high school i did this typically french class preparatoire which is sort of like uh high level training uh to go into écoles, sort of top 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 school so you don't go to you can go to university out of high school in france but you can also go to these class preparatoire with a lot of course and a lot of training and a lot of exams. And then you go through national contests to enter either engineering school or business school or others. And yeah. you're ranked at the national. Level. So I did that. Yeah. Uh, again, I didn't do any economics. I did mostly math. Um, and then when I enter École Normale Supérieure, I actually entered an economics department. Huh. So it means I took my first economic class at the senior level, I never had a single economics class before that time, mm. so it felt kind of surprising
0: well what was the class about
1: uh so i so i entered uh, i entered economic, economic superior and I was it was theoretically oriented department they were specialized in economic uh, decision theory economics of uncertainty. So we went straight into a lot of economics of uncertainty. That was your first
0: class? Your first class was economics of uncertainty? Wow.
1: (laughs) So, and I I just, I just, I just did not expect that. Mm. So the only thing I had in class preparatoire was some some sort of recent economic history class, for instance, about the Asian crisis and Mm. the Latin American debt crisis, so very narrative. So it was about mm. I don't know debt, exchange rate banks, and then I right. go to an economics department, and the first course is just like applied math. Yeah, uh, and so Lagrangian and and having a very mathematized uh consumer behavior and and things like that. So I just felt that I, it was uh, to me it was even easier because I could actually. The, the problem is that I could actually apply my math tool, get good grades mm. without really understanding the economics content of that. Right. Right. A lot bigger. And I think my dominant feeling was really surprised. I, I remember thinking, wow, there is really a gap between the way the public is discussing economics and what's going on in that class. And mm. no one can uh, explain to me that gap. That mm. that's interesting.
2: Mm.
0: That's interesting. Did you like the? So, what parts of the economics were you noticing for the first time when you were learning the... I mean, uh, when you're taking a class like that and you're doing all those Lagrangians, you could you could literally not necessarily. You might have difficulty seeing any of the actual economic content. What did? But it sounds like some you you did see it. What what was it that you saw?
1: Uh, no, I saw it later. So uh, basically, at economics Spare, in this time, you do sort of a uh, you start a master's degree, and before you actually do your uh, second year of master and specialize into doing a PhD, if you want, you basically go through a national teaching contest, uh, which is called the aggregation, mm. and so you prepare to become a economics teacher. Mm. Uh, that year, I remember the first mock exam we had at the beginning of the year, uh, so it's like old-style writing essays on the topic an economics topic was something like, are we witnessing a uh, change in the cycle? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do the exam and I went to see the director and said, I'm sorry, I don't know what the cycle is. <laughs> and at that moment I was like, okay, now I- I'm basically preparing to become an economics teacher. I'd better learn <laughs> economics. <laughs> and so I took a micro textbook and I took a macro textbook and I read, read them top to bottom. Yeah. But it was already the third year. Into yeah. doing economics, so I basically could go through almost a whole economics degree, uh, knowing not knowing what a cycle is or right. monopolistic competition is right. or this kind of basic notion. So I learned about the economic content after. Um,
0: it, 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 do you think it was always like that in economic history, where, where there was this awkwardness of 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 learning the the material? Because I, I actually think. In America, what I notice is the 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 difficulty of going from the undergraduate level training to the graduate level training is so massive. I mean the and it's always it's always the math for America, at least that it seems like for Americans, it's always that math. You you you, but it sounds like you went the opposite. You you had the math first and then the economics. Has 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 education curriculum in the history of economics? Is it has it ever been has it ever been like something that has it changed a lot i guess is it different over time a lot
1: i think it's different across times and across countries so for instance in france so i would say for instance the you you can you can actually get a good sense of that if you read marion forcat's book on economics and societies mm. so basically what she does is that she compares Uh, the the us the uk and france across the 20th century in terms Mm. of of economic research and education and there is also a very recent book by keystribe um that re-examined the history of economic education in the uk since the mid-90s centuries Mm. and for instance they're they're huge different in the uk for instance uh you would learn about the economics content like right away like at Cambridge or Oxford in France you had two traditions, and you can you could still see that very late in the 20th century uh there is one tradition whereby economics is attached to low schools basically mm-hmm. I mean it, like there were only economics department or economics curricula starting in the 70s uh, late 60s so it's pretty late so before that time and you still have that sense either you were learning economics or part of a low degree to some extent uh-huh. um, and so it was very institutional uh, very institutional and so, so who, who is a consumer Who is firms national accounting was last real-
2: year
1: which is in engineering school economics is at least the 20s and it was completely different it was basically the application of math tools to for instance understand whether you actually want to uh have a tax for to build a road or a bridge or something like that yeah uh, and it was a completely different tradition in in economics um, mm. so i in, in 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 that case you actually learned the math first yeah early in the 20th century and then sometimes in your career as an engineer you're led to uh, economics questions about taxation about construction about cost and benefits about marginal cost and things like that and so you take your math tools and you apply them to uh, economics issue um, mm. and so I guess I and, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, French economic researcher going to top school in the U.S. are actually coming from that tradition learning math and then fairly late in their curriculum, Tirol, for instance, that what he, that's what he did. He went through polytechnics. Mm. I think if you listen to him closely, he would say that while in polytechnic, he had no interest in economics at all. And quite late uh, in his studies, it was like, oh, there, you can actually do some analysis of competition uh, with these tools and mm. when to apply these tools to economics question. Mm. So that's not... That's not the only French experience you can have uh, with economics. A lot of other, for instance, the regulation school, Leon Boyer, is an excellent analysis of the banking system and the financial systems and notions of crisis that is very institutionalist and in character. And then there is that other tradition of taking math tools and applying them to economics issues. Mm. You can see these two traditions in French in French economics. So Piketty,
0: yes. Thomas Piketty, he probably got that that math first, econ second kind of probably, training.
1: I don't I don't remember. Right? Yeah. I, I I don't remember his training. I know he did a PhD with Grandmont and mm-hmm. Grandmont was also a polytechnician and trained in math before mm-hmm. he actually got training in economics.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So when you decided that you wanted to become an economist was there well, okay, in your path to becoming an economist what what was sort of the first intellectual experience that really meant a lot to you that that was like you know your your that was sort of an an early this is what this is i love this you know th- this is what i love it's had a bit this is this is intellectually so deep and interesting what would it have been
1: um so there are i remember several episodes so first i I make my choice negatively. So basically, I was I was basically when I was in class préparatoire, I was rather set to enter a business school, and I was like, I don't want to do this career. Right. So I'm trying to find a place to land that was not it, and so that's how I landed at the economics department. Mm -hmm. And so then I proceed. I really proceeded. I don't. I I knew what I didn't want to do. when, when, when you are at École L'Homme you also start teaching very early at age 19 or 20, basically, since you have to go through that teaching contest at some point. And even if you become a researcher, you have to teach basically at 19 and 20. In the first year when you arrive, you have to teach one class. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're, you have the age of the students. And I do remember teaching my first economics class at 19. And it was on money. And I get out. It's really at 19, you're not in the mood for becoming a... Teacher, I mean, you just how out of high school. There's no way you're gonna want to have the life life of your teacher. But I I I do remember I told that class, and when I get out, I was like, I know how to do that. I can teach well. Uh, mm. Really, it was very clear. I, I it it was like I did not I did not know if I wanted to do that. But I knew I could explain these things. I, I knew I could tell stories to the students.
0: Oh, so wait. So one of your first experiences making you want to become an economist is actually just teaching and explaining. Because yes. in France, they've got you teaching economics very early. Cool.
2: Wow. Yes
1: um so that's one thing and uh, you didn't
0: know the material so you're having to learn it
1: oh no i had to I, I, as i was saying i was mostly doing applied math so, yeah. so if i oh. wanted money if i wanted each money to uh first year to, to it was to freshmen basically right. i basically have to learn about uh notions of money and change in right. economics conceive money just the yeah. day before essentially yeah, yeah. so
2: oh my gosh
1: been like that so that ah. was a first that certainly was a first experience um then uh so then let me think about it um I had a second negative experience so I uh, before I actually before my last year at École Normale Supérieure, which was uh, uh which was about choosing a second year of master before specializing for a PG I took a year off and I went to work at the French Central Bank Mm-hmm. So I did consumption forecasting and stuff like that
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I do really so it was exactly the kind of carrier you could have as an economist
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I also made a negative choice I do remember I, I had some epistemological questions that no one could answer like I was supposed to do models to predict consumption uh, in the next quarter and I yeah. was like I think that's possible at all uh, uh-huh. and it's really weird so I was doing VARs <laughs> yeah Basically, so as to sort of, or anything that was about signal extraction at that mm. time, like spectral analysis was very fashionable, I remember. And I remember attending a conference with other central bank economists, and um, the the speaker was a famous statistician in France, uh, Alain Montfort, and it was basically... Uh, making fun of the audience for not understanding essential stuff about the statistical tools we were using. So we would say, for instance, you're using spectral analysis or filtering theory mindlessly, and so you're generating spurious correlation in the data, and you're not even aware of that. You have to be more careful about your tools. And I You were saying
0: this, or somebody else was saying this?
1: uh, It was he, Alain Montfort, the statistician, Mm. was saying that to the audience of... Central banking and Wow. Oh. uh saying you're not careful enough um it, this yeah, is like
0: it, a Lucas critique kind of thing he's saying,
1: yes, it was more so it was less epistemology deep it was it, people were uh building a new macroeconometric model for uh for friends, and it was it was more uh pragmatic, yes, ah. the way you use your tool, you have to get a deeper understanding of what to do and what not to do, and i really I really felt. I really felt okay I can cannot do that job because to some extent if I do that I'll be a button pressure so You'd I a what I can, a button pressure uh, well, you know I can use the software I can get some r two out of my software, but I never got that very deep understanding of the statistical tools that um that I'm using, yeah, and I can see that i I would need it right. I was trained at, again I was trained as a rational decision theorist uh, mm. so i didn't have that sort of like yeah core understanding on how i was using statistical tool that i felt i needed where did um, you get
0: the rational decision making is that because of that early
1: early yes. class on uncertainty? We Rational. Uh, we had we had sort of uh decision and their uncertainty theory one two three i mean wow <laughs> a lot of training in that that's because really yeah that's because the researcher here were and are still really good at, at decision theory so oh I also God. learned uh I, I also learned growth theory and how to apply these models and stata and how old
0: was, are you at this point how old are you I,
1: I, I it was a year i took a year off from my curriculum at the econo superior to ro- work at the central bank and that's mm. where I understood that clearly I was not going to become an econometrician i mean mm. I didn't have depth, the necessary depth to do that mm. Because you
0: always were wanting to go deeper. I mean, like there's a story where there's a person in your shoes who would have been perfectly content to continue to just do the work and not be particularly bothered by not having these epistemological questions answered. But you're not like that, right? Is that, no, is that I just-
1: actually? I actually I don't think so. I mean, they they the central bank modeler that I know and I know a lot of them, some of them are my friends, and I also wrote histories on economics analysis at the Bank of England and at the Fed, so I do talk a lot to central bank economists, and they do have a huge epistemological depth about what are their tools, what their tools are gonna deliver, and can you actually use the GSG models in a central banks? What, what, What plugs in do you actually need? What knowledge of data? Do you actually need what knowledge of institution do you need? I I found them, I in I mean I just felt I didn't have that epistemological depth and at the same time, uh. So something I I I I didn't mention is that at the same time I was doing that economics education, I was uh, also attending course at the divinity school, mm. uh, and it was when we, where where um, a f- famous French philosopher, Paul Ricœur. Um, who is one of the leading uh, hermeneutics and phenomenolo- phenomenology uh, philosopher was still teaching there and so i i did a lot of uh i took a lot of course in in philosophy of,
2: mm.
0: of
1: hermeneutics and
0: but it was in the divinity school
1: <laughs> yeah totally or, unrelated it, it it, was totally so it weird. was
0: you, you were were you sort of thinking of two different possible tracks yes. or you just yes. had two different interests
1: no uh, well I had different interests. There were a moment I did realize that I was supposed to become an economics, and yet I knew a very little about economics. Yeah. So it did not feel very comfortable. So I just uh, I just did a very different uh, curriculum on the side. Got you know, it. Learning Greeks and Hebrew, and mm. you know, and also doing a lot of philosophy because of 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 the impact of that that very famous philosopher.
0: Yeah. On
2: that. Was that
0: because you have a religious background or was it more of just like a historical philosophical kind of sense
2: of sensibility?
1: I happen to have a a religious background, but it's it's sort of... uh Lutheran uh theology and most of the people were not here for religious reason. It's just mm. like doing a degree in humanities.
2: Mm,
0: got it. Okay. Like got understanding
1: it. understanding religion, but I mean the phenomenon of religion it's yeah. like Not deepening your own if you want to deepen your own faith, right. don't be really I get it. it. I get really it. Yeah. Um, so in, I, I didn't rationalize it that way, but it was sort of humanities uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of philosophy training at that time. Mm-hmm. So at, at, at the same time, I was like, I'm not going to be an econometrician. I'm not deep in, I clearly sense I was not deep enough. And, uh, on the other hand, I had that question. of why economics is the way it is. You yeah. That I had, and um, I, I, I felt I had the tools to actually answer that kind of questions and Mm. i want to actually discuss with uh the historian of economics who would become my 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 supervisor and he had time to give me and give me stuff to read and slowly i was like yeah i think i can and i was very to me for for instance asking questions about values and worldviews and positive and normative analysis to me it felt natural right and so i when i came back to uh, having to choose a master uh, specialty, I choose philosophy of economics. Mm. I was Is philosophy
0: not... of economics different yeah. from history of economic thought? No,
1: I was not yet into. What's um...
0: philosophy of economics?
1: Well, philosophy of economics is to actually understand um, questions of ontology. So ontology is really yeah. what what's essentially what economic mm-hmm. phenomenon. And epistemology how do you know how do economists know do criteria to know economic phenomena change over time right how do they feel they know well or know bad things and whatever so right. that's kind of things you so you study you study Kuhn for instance yeah. and, and that kind of that kind of stuff so I was doing that and I still was not I still was not really satisfied with that because it was it felt really that's not what it is but I was young and I felt like I was like an armchair philosopher you know just taking economic theories or economic practice and giving my own little informed opinion about them yeah what happened is that my master my master thesis was about uh positive and normative analysis uh in uh the research of gunnar myrda
0: oh yeah the nobel prize winner that wins it with, with hayek okay
1: and so i went actually what i did as at some point so i researched uh he's changing views of the positive and normative elements in economic theory
0: is that what he's and, mostly known for
1: uh no uh, so he's is known for very different things that's what is interesting so he's known for uh the theory of the monetary economics he did in the 30s yeah but then by economic standard, it changes interest enough to become more of a sociologist. That's what economists would say. That's not what he would say. And mm. is, I, I guess is most famous for something called uh, American Dilemma and looking into the root economic and sociological cause of uh, discrimination against Black.
0: Uh, he writes yeah. that? I did yeah, know he that. that.
1: He wrote that oh, during the war.
0: What year is that?
1: It was, he published it in '44. So he did the research during the war. basically and it's it's a very famous not not in economics but in humanities it's one of the first actual research that attributes difference in outcomes between white and black americans not to genetics but to uh to economics discrimination or economics path and things like that
0: but it did not uh it, it, it did you know with becker's discrimination work that comes in the 50s it 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 just never had the impact in economics the way like Becker's work would have an impact. No,
1: because it. it was it was uh, it was very institutionalist. Yeah, you with know, sort of loop. So it's all literally style. There is no models in in there. No in models. Through, by the way, it's not because he was not capable of doing that. That's what he had done in the twenties and thirties is really mm-hmm. providing models of money and monetary right. economics and models of the interest rate. But, but the style it chose to do, American Dilemma, was really an, an, a big institutional research into all mm. like, you know, the U.S. constitutions and accumulating data on economic outcomes from. So, so it was not that style of, of work. Yeah uh, Also, he, at that time, it was, not, it was more working in public and international institutions. So I'm not even sure I actually tried to make a difference in academia. It was not teaching in academia anymore.
0: It's almost like a de kind of effort. Uh, 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 Alexis de like just coming to the United States and writing from France a book on this kind of comparative French. Oh, yes. pers- You know, it, it's almost kind of got that feel to it. Who, yes. Who's the audience for that book? Is it sociologists?
1: I don't think it's out of the... So it was commissioned work. Uh, so it had a lot more impact in sociology than in economics.
0: Mm. Uh, but that's not what you write your thesis on what do you uh, write you write, you write it on actually, normative i
1: actually i actually studied his different phase yeah and try to understand so on top and what he does basically uh, at uh, in the first period of his life he's actually very much of a positivist he even wrote a book called the political element in the development of economics yeah uh saying okay you know in welfare analysis you have positive analysis and normative economics. you should be able to disentangle. Yeah. What is interesting is that he wrote the last last chapter on a visit in the U.S. during the twenty nine crisis, mm. and so the last chapter is already different. It has that sense that maybe you cannot fully separate your positive and normative analysis in mm. the end. And then he shifted in the thirties and forties while writing American Dilemma to a completely different epistemology, saying, "Okay." um they're uh, working with values is basically unavoidable what you can avoid is smuggling your own values as a researcher into the analysis and you can do that by adopting the values of this of the of the actually public that you study for instance for him it was the value in the u.s constitution and making them explicit so it's a strong shift in how to handle um values in economic analysis so that's what i studied and when i did that at some point i decided to go to the archives to visit his archives to understand how where old the... are
0: you how old are you when you're doing this
1: uh i'm in the master so i'm, I'm probably i'm sort of 21 i think wow uh 22 i don't remember wait are um, you at his uni- I are you know at his
0: university business. are you at his university or was it you had to go to- uh,
1: yes I'm, I'm 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 um it's at the moment, I decide I'm gonna do a PhD in in, in that, yeah. uh, and and when I I do that's that's really a to me it was a big experience because when I opened the archive there were tons of so his wife Alva Myrdal he's also a Nobel Prize she got the Nobel Prize for peace uh, because what? She disarmament. Oh. and she by that uh, uh, early Who got she was, it first
0: yeah. he, she got it first
1: uh she no no he got it first it was the second one with hayek yeah which is pretty much a big history so he got it in like 74 75 and she got it in the in the 80s
0: she got it uh, in the 80s
1: yes oh uh but they had a, it's an interesting couple um and so i went to the archive found letters between them and with other all sort of colleagues and also when he was working on american dilemma between colleagues in the u.s uh, in sociology for instance and his work and i always really like okay that's data so it's not me sitting in my chair and giving my informed opinion about this research this is really me reconstructing how a body of work came to be from data yeah and, and so i decided i would do that i would specialized in history of economics and i would work from data which is uh, at that time that was archived
0: that was on the master's thesis so with 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 that master's thesis and being in the archives in particular it felt very empirical there you (laughs) know it it was a very as opposed to what what as opposed to that more purely mathematical work which didn't feel as it wasn't empirical or something know,
1: as opposed to at that again i think this is the wrong view of philosophy of economics but at that time I, my feeling was that you know so i did my phd comparing the ties between values and theories in myrtle compared with friedman Milton friedman oh. compared with jacob Marshak, who is the founding director of the coles commission
2: oh goodness and, um,
1: and, in all three cases, I did archive research and, and i I felt that it was a different process than you know reading their work and trying to assess the internal consistency of their work. for instance, a philosopher would ask, "Is Friedman doing what he says is doing in terms of handling data, mm. for instance, is it more of an inductivist researcher of a deductivist researcher?" Uh, did this practice change across time? Is it consistent with what you saying? Is it internally consistent with scientific standards? Mm. And that's not that's not the question I ended up asking. My question were, were more, how did they came to develop the theories uh, uh, that they developed? Where did they found their data? Were they influenced by the times they're writing in, by their encounters, by their wives, and so forth?
0: One's more like critical judgment and one's more like sociological or personal
1: well well one is more about thinking about context and the consistency of conceptual analysis and the ah. other one is just trying to reconstruct a process on the basis of data yeah which are archived for instance ah.
0: um
1: so it's that was really your
0: dissertation in graduate school or that was your master's thesis
1: no the myrtle was my master's thesis and then i i actually did more work on myrtle yeah. I also work on Friedman and also work on Marshak because they were uh contemporaries yeah. and I wanted to do some comparative Did analysis. they like each other? Uh they didn't know each other really. They
0: didn't uh, even know each other.
1: I just picked them because they they were uh they went through World War 2.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: all three of them uh they were actually working at around the same time but from different background with different type of work and I wanted yeah. to over
0: three of them so so friedman and Merdal never really interacted no did no. hayek and Merdal
1: interact oh yes friedman and hayek I mean, they're not even from the same generation but are f- famous stories and how they interacted for instance at the mount pelerin society though I and mean, then the
0: merdahl was in the mount pelerin society
1: oh uh, no no uh oh I, I was thinking hayek and friedman oh
0: no no i was okay. saying hayek and and merdahl
1: uh, they actually, Myrtle knew about Hayek's uh, very early work that yeah. was in economic theory, but I mean, Myrtle, after American Dilemma, so we are in 44, yeah. he got to the United Nations, and then he got into doing some development economics uh, in public, in international organizations, so he was really doing something completely different.
0: Yeah, but didn't he have a negative reaction to having to share the Nobel Prize with Hayek? thought I heard it uh- oh.
1: Yes, privately it was. It was like, yeah, privately it was. It was saying, okay, we don't share the same politics, we don't share the same epistemology, we don't do the same type of work. Does that? This really doesn't make sense. He even thought about refusing the Nobel Prize on ground of sharing with Hayek. In in the end, he had
0: a negative opinion of Hayek.
1: Uh well, at that point, he probably have a negative political opinion of Hayek. So, mm. but it's sort of it's just happened because of the Nobel prize they didn't have the same career. they didn't have real interactions um yeah
0: Mm. so you do that work you go to graduate school and where do you end up going to get your phd is it a phd or is it called something different
1: no no, it's a phd it's a phd in economics and the field field is history of economics
0: history Um, of economics where do you end up going
1: uh, for a PhD, mm-hmm. so I had to shift university. I first go to La Sorbonne, and then my my PhD advisor moved to uh Nanterre. Um, and so I followed him there, and so mm. I, I finished my PhD uh in Nanterre.
0: Did, did I have some memory that you worked with Thomas Piketty or almost did or something like that? Is that no? I, I no, I didn't. You didn't okay. Um, so so how was that? I know you haven't been in american phd programs but you I, I know you probably know everything about them so how is the experience like uh in france for the phd training in, in economics versus what's like a typical training uh in the united states
1: so i, I did my phd in the 2000 mm. uh, and at that time I think especially in the issue of economics, but in, in economics more generally, it was fairly loose. You you didn't have a lot of uh, training once you entered the PhD program. And my reason for choosing my PhD advisor was that because I stopped and took a year off, most of my fellow students, I saw going into the PhD program one year ahead of me. Mm. And they really seemed all uh, left to their left How do you say in English? Left Uh, to their
0: devices or something like that? uh,
1: Left to their own. I mean, they were seeing their PG advisors like every three months for an hour. I mean, they really had no idea what they were doing. So I was like, maybe I should choose the advisor rather than the topic and Mm. choose someone that is actually going to help me. Because at that time, it was just... So I think France was lagging the US and in, in all countries in the past 20 years, we make progress into... Uh really training PhD students like through summer schools or in French, for instance, you didn't have any courses in the first year of the PhD program. You were you you actually picked up book and learned how to be a historian. And I think even an econometrician or labor economics by talking to people, I, now it's really? more system, now it's more systematized. So I felt I felt it was really loose, basically. Mm. Hopefully there were a group of PhD students. So we were trading nice reads and trying to emulate. Basically, it was about emulating a nice paper and and whatsoever. Now, if you actually train into becoming, of course, uh, any field, but even history of economics, you are going to get serious methodological courses into how to do archive or how to do quantitative work how to yeah. do text analysis how to do network analysis how mm-hmm. to read text and but it didn't exist even 15 years sure uh, time.
0: right because it seems like you know the kinds of work if you're working with literary texts or things like that citation counts learning, you know, natural language processing and network analysis to understand connections between people, especially the way that you, you described your work, that does sound like that would be very, very important.
1: Yeah, so basically uh, the way we did is, so you ask what the methods you're going to use are going to depend on the question you ask. For for <laughs> instance, if I ask a question about how did Bob Lucas came up with are models with rational expectation, I'll have to go to the archive to understand how we came up with the idea who he was influenced with. It was at Carnegie, so was he influenced by Bellman or who actually mm. taught in Bellman and stuff like that. But then if I want to study dissemination, and for instance, another question which is, how did that rational expectation models became popular? Yeah. How did it spread throughout the profession? then what I, I have to do is to do network and license and bibliometrics mm. and to actually track uh, the, the spread of that kind of models and mm. who actually supervise whom, who actually uh, where the paper. You're, you're in the
0: archive. What what documents are you going towards to get um, advisor, advisee? You're going.
1: Uh, I got a colleague who actually did that. Completely systematically, so Andre Forensic is doing a prosopography, which is which is a word that actually means collective quantitative biography of economics yeah. as a whole. Yeah. So it really depends. Sometimes, so I, and I did some prosopography of Stanford when I work on history of economics at Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, Minnesota as well. That's interesting for me and MIT uh, when I when I I did my postdoc on the history of economics at MIT. So sometimes secretaries do keep a, a very detailed record of who graduating when who was on the committee what was the topic and stuff like that and sometimes you have to go through the archive uh, like for instance solo's archive and um, look into all the dissertation is supervised and uh, you look at the you look at the uh, or you get to university record and look at the printed PhDs and try to decipher the signatures to understand who was on the committee and sometimes it can be really long so wow. it's really detective work so you you actually take a pictures of the uh, first pages of like every dissertation in economics you can find and for instance the MIT library or the mm-hmm. central library and you're like, okay, I think this is like an. What about
0: those <laughs> optic scanners? What about that? You know, the 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 scanners that are like kind of able to quickly read, you know, signatures and, and extract that. Are you using any of that that kind we of technology? Start,
1: we're starting to use them, but starting to use them. Yeah, but. Uh, you it's just like it's just like machine learning you have to have a database to train right. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're the first to do that so yeah you, you right. actually have to build your own database right. to begin with
0: wow yeah. wow so you uh you what do you write your dissertation on again what
1: is it uh, so i i wrote my dissertation on the links between theories and values theories uh,
0: and values
1: and then i compared three economists uh from the same generation doing very different work so and new- that was
0: that was myrtle friedman and moshnik yes exactly okay okay yeah uh, uh well so uh you know friedman's the one i know the most about what what would you what could you tell me about him that i you know, what, what could you so tell me what about?
1: I can tell you is that when you actually so is one of the most interesting character to think about these issues because is as well known from his for his monetary theory and monetary history and monetary empirics as for his commitment uh, not even commitment to for building the uh, the uh, the basics of neoliberalism like free to choose capitalism and freedom and so forth. Mm-hmm. And here you have a question, and the question is. Uh, Like lots of people are going to say, oh, that shows that Friedman is ideological. And my question is, how do you how do you show that? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: How do you show that there? You you get a chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. Did the science come first? Of course, it's going to tell you not intervening in market as both efficient. So that's the science. Mm -hmm. And it's also fair, you know, because there is a tyranny of the majority And so markets are better, fairer way to actually connect decisions of individual to one another than other types of political processes. Mm. You get that. And and he would say in his own words, you know, my science and my politics happen to be consistent. They lead to the kind of same policy advice. Like don't touch the markets too much. And it's a lucky consistency. And that's his own word. Lucky consistency. A lucky
0: consistency.
1: And, and, and the whole question is, how do you analyze that? If you're trying to see if the science or the ideology comes first. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, it's all endogenous. It's all-
1: Exactly. So what I did is basically, things. what I did is try to basically rebuild uh, the development of his worldview. So in your yeah. worldview, you actually both have the epistemological commitments yeah. and political commitments that yeah. I sort of tracked into the archive. Whom he talked to, who he was influenced uh, by, and uh, by his wife, for instance, by, mm. by his father in law, Aaron, Aaron Director, by his own experience, his war work. So he basically mm. worked on price control during the war.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and he actually got some ideas about how, how problematic it, it can be from all this. So you sort of avoid the egg and chicken problem of saying this is scientific and this is not scientific. This is not. Mm. The- you're not gonna get a lot out of that, basically. I think What's it, his
0: worldview then?
1: So his worldview is uh, um, it, it developed at the same time. This kind of efficiency and fairness issue developed at the same time. The idea that um, uh, how market works and how markets are basically a way to solve disagreement among citizens. Mm. And you in in that you can both build. so he was he actually worked with savage uh, yeah, right, he's got that paper and right. he, he got he got savage's view of kind of subjective probabilities in how mm. to make people's subjective probability converge. how does this work, and then it sort of applied that uh, both to economics and to a political system mm. Um, and that's and that's also in that very early period that it came to the idea that uh, the the, uh, um, the Great Depression was actually caused by central banks and how they failed to issue enough money in the economy, and then is set to actually uh, build series monetary series with Anna Schwartz to actually test that hypothesis. But you can see in the archive that. When he started that work with Anna Schwartz, he already had that notion of what caused the Great Depression that was here. And so then he went through 20 years of empirical work to actually make sense of that, of that hypothesis. He also, he also was an excellent statistician, but he did not believe that static, statistical testing alone could actually prove an hypothesis. He mm. thought that you need to have a full history, a full economic history uh of crisis to actually uh get to a conclusion.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is that is there something about what you just said that could help explain why he talks t- to um Pinochet?
1: Um okay, so is that that cool
0: markets question. are ways of you know helping people that are at odds with each other you know this is a dictator he's hostile to he's oppressive and hostile to his people i mean is there something in that that makes him think
1: so i don't know enough if you want to if you want to solve that story is there really detailed histories of who we talk to exactly was it pinochet uh what's his concepts of advising for instance I would say that it went went there for a short period, that it was asked to do something specific that was about the implementation of ideas. Um, So you would need to talk to a a specialist about Mm, that. But needed issues. So I I can tell you, if I wanted to uh, to answer your question, I'll need to go back and check into that literature, for instance, by Leonidas Montes, who got a prize for a paper on Friedman in Chile, uh, for Mm. instance. Who was he talking to? What was he asked to do? Mm-hmm. What did you understand about Pinochet's program at that time and w- how it was later reconstructed? You have to mm. be specific about uh, what it was asked to do. Whether so it you've,
0: it- your work, the way you approach this is you don't just sit and like live in the ideas. You're, you're like, you're like, you're following them. You're following their conversations and your yes. research.
1: Yes, exactly. So typically, I'm going to go to the archive. I'm going to check correspondence, of course. Mm. For uh, another good, another good uh, uh, type of data to think about their intellectual development is grant applications mm. as well, because you know there is that that big issue. If if you follow ID through textbooks and how they are being taught, they all seem clear and obvious, because you know a good textbook writer is someone that's going to make you like tell you about economic theories or economic practice about or about statistical practice about econometrics and it's going to sound obvious yeah like, stripping the all the process to its bare essential and get you the core intuition and and as a student you're going to walk away with that yeah what what i do is the exact opposite of that i mean mm. i just don't come obvious uh it's messy there is a lot of failures uh you, you don't get to, un, to it's, it's not about economists waking up one day and saying, oh, I'm going to reconstruct monetary series up to the, I get an understanding on whether central banks put enough money in the economy when there was a credit crunch or whatever, yeah. or in, in, in stuff that are of interest to you. Uh, whether, you know, some economists or econometrician, microeconometrician show up in the 70s saying, oh, we have to find better ways of randomizing and come up with better theories of of randomization. That's Mm -hmm. not like that. I mean, that's not like that. People go to the government and the government says, what you're doing here is not clear to us. You say there are omitted variables, but what is omitted variables and how do we solve them? And 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 then you struggle and you actually ra- write a grant application to actually tr- so you develop a sort of research program and then the research program is going to turn out differently, and maybe thirty years after you come to that understanding of what you've been trying to do over a period of thirty years. Yeah, and I think I think economists need, need more of that, and especially graduate students. You're not going to help graduate students by teaching them. Like well packaged, very clear ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that is, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm reconstructing, thinking, or practicing economics, uh, in the middle of a mess. Basically.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah,
0: there, there, was this, there was this comment made on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you saw it, where the where the person said this is paraphrase. we don't need to read historical writers because their value, if there is any, has already been incorporated into our modern training. He, that's like a summary. It was kind of more funny the way he said it. And it started this whole yeah. like viral deal, but um, you know, and people, and so I was kind of curious what your response is to that because on the face of it, putting aside that that's offensive to historians, it, there's, there's a lot of things about it that are kind of useful, which is, it's it's it seems very it seems like an efficient way to learn why would you read something twice when you could just read it once and i was just wondering you know that comment what what's your reaction to that comment what why why do why would a person in general do you think say that and and what do you what do you think about that comment in general
1: so two things so even if it was true and the notion that uh bad ideas are always dismissed and good ideas are like if if it was true that economics was a fully progressive science you're right yes after i i i hope i just made the case to say uh people think in context and then ideas travel from or tools travel from one context to one other. right and if you want to train economist you want to teach them the context in which these ideas emerge and who right. they were talking to. I mean, it's, it sort of matters that Aruduburu were doing sort of mathematical economics at a moment when mathematical mathematics itself was very different from what it's now. Yeah. So, what they took and which mathematician they were talking to, and today math is different. Same with the like insight taken from psychology in economics. Psychology in the fifties is not like psychology in the 2000s. Right. Uh, and so you still need, you still need a good grasp on how so, sort of ideas got out, out of the messiness and the messiness in one period. And then if if these ideas are sort of concepts or practice or resistance through uh, changing times, how come? How come? How they're repackaged, uh, how they travel and stuff like that. So that's one thing I think you still need to actually... To read all these, to even very old like Adam uh, Smith. When you actually read Adam Smith, it sounds very different from the package Adam Smith you heard of in Econ One Hundred One or even in graduate students. Yeah, and then there is that problem of that that kind of statement assume a notion of progress. Whereby, that, 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 whereby economics would still be much alike physics. You know, there are dismissed theories and you keep moving. I d- what is weird is that I think that in the wake of the great financial crisis, economist epistemology shifted a bit. It shifted from that idea that you have lows to be encouraged and right ones and wrong ones got dismissed to a more pragmatic epistemology. You can see it in, for instance, Roderick Economics Rules. So the, the new epistemology economics seems to work from is basically something that you, you, know, you have a shelf of models and you're going to pick up some models for a specific purpose. Mm. And depending on what your purpose is, the economic models that make sense is quite different. Yeah. If that's your vision of economics, then you don't have that notion of, you know, good ideas get incorporated whatsoever. Mm. You need to have a bookshelf of models or a bookshelf of intuition or, or a toolbox. And you need to understand what one to pick up at one time. And usually, the people who create a sort of core model, like Dixit Stiglitz model or a core tool, like for instance, synthetic control or uh, instrumental variables, yeah. when you read their text, it comes with a lot of you can use this in that setting and not in that setting. And you want to be careful, and this doesn't genera- generalize over that. Uh, and for instance, when computers is going to get better, you may want to do it differently uh for instance in the history of rational expectations uh you can see actually lucas saying okay we're going to do that models because that's what the computer allows us to do right Uh, in 20 years maybe the right models is going to be very different right right and and, and if you if you actually work from that sort of bookshelf epistemology of models yeah it's more interesting and even more useful to actually understand uh, how these tools are created and how these models are created mm-hmm. and what sets of cavities they come with so you mm. can show the whole package you know mm. i don't know if that's clear
2: but
0: oh it's great that's yeah, that's. Uh, right. um so i want we're at the kind of the top of the hour and um i wanted to kind of wrap things up uh so is there a when you look back over your life um and you think about a paper in economics or a book in economics that you wouldn't necessarily say it's the most important paper you've ever read or the most important book, but, but it it's a paper that you appear to have been influenced by. So like, you know, for me, it's probably Spence's job market paper, his signaling paper, only because I just find that that paper uh, I just now you use it every day in the most casual way. It's just kind of like it's just now shaped my brain a lot. um But I wouldn't say that you know it's the most important article ever written. It's just it just lives in my head all the time. Do you have something like that that you can think of?
1: Um. So like, like every person, you actually had the question too. I would say I cannot pick up one. Yeah. Uh, probably because my interests change and. Um, so- I like reading new work in history of economics. So I do have sort of like the three or four new papers and book that sort of affect me a lot every year. Yeah. So I, I got a series of them. I, I So there are some that, so I was trained as a historians of science and since it was new at the time to do history of economics as history of science, we looked for uh, good texts in other parts of the history of science. So I can say, for instance, uh, Lauren Daston, who is a, a famous historian of science, wrote a book on uh, how notions of objectivity in science came to change from the 19th century, saying, uh, you know, in the 19th century, it was, it was balance and personal balance in their researcher mind, that was objectivity, while in the 20th century, and especially after World War II, it was more... Uh, technical objectivity. I mean, Mm. the tools you use are going to give you that objectivity. Quantification is going to give you some objectivity. Mm. There is that book. In History of Physics, there is a cool book by uh, historians of physics, David Kayser, Mm. uh, which is called How the the Hippies Save Physics. And that that relates the rise of quantum theory to the to hippies in Cali physics hippies in California actually taking drugs, getting high, thinking about the meaning of life and the meaning of religion and relating mm. that to deep epistemological issues about quantum theory.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And,
1: uh and then in one book that I go around a lot is not by a historian, it's by a, a journalist named David Warsh. Uh yeah. wrote, wrote a book called Knowledge in the Wealth of I think it's knowledge in the wealth of nations. Uh And it's a history of how Paul Romer came up with a theory of endogenous theory. But in fact, it's a much larger history of how economists thought about growth since Adam Smith.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And it goes pretty deeply into notions of growth and what it means to actually try to solve the mass uh, uh, with non-convexities and stuff like that. So pretty even to technical issues, but also huge on context and what it means to present a new idea at the uh, annual meeting of the american economic association and how you mm-hmm. get pushback and how id spread in the profession and you know the fair that is like trying to get your ideas through and whatever yeah. it also it also influenced me quite a lot
0: yeah those sound wonderful um uh you know right now we're trying to be uh, a more open and accepting uh profession especially in the seminar culture but the seminar culture has historically been a important part of the transmission of ideas and the sharpening of ideas and and it's just been this sociological uh mechanism i mean it what's your overall feeling about that that effort you know when it's not really being driven by it's not really, it's being driven by equity as opposed to, you know, sharpening the scientific purpose of it.
1: Uh, so I actually wrote a whole paper on that. I mean, the history of workshops in a yeah. comics, workshops and conferences in the comics. And so, so I think there are very distinct subcultures. So Chicago actually sort of evolved a culture of, uh, if you want to sharpen your ideas, just go through fightings and clashes and calling things out and debunking where the corpses are buried and stuff like that. <laughs> but there, there are really other cultures of uh, arguing with each other, uh, for sure. And also what you can see in the history of workshops uh, and conferences is that it contributed to it both reflected and contributed to build that sort of hierarchical structure mm. that it that you can find in every science, but it is really stronger in comics than in other uh, science. And so there is a premium to making a sort of smart comments Mm. rather than sort of helping the speaker. Mm. And at some point, you can even see, for instance, at LSE that the people who are sitting in the front versus the people who are sitting in the back is different. So there is a whole uh, big culture of that. Who do you invite? Who do you go to lunch with? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also part of the uh, the workshop culture. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if you want to change that, I mean, it really helps to do the work that uh, groups of economists have been doing on what kind of question female versus male get, for instance, mm-hmm. how, how much they are interrupted and whatever. So this, this gives you a sense of the what, Uh, and saying, okay, so female gets interrupted like 20% more than male, and so there's a difference. Uh, But it doesn't give you any uh, hints on the why and the how. And to do that, you need to do some histories, histories of how the workshop culture and the debating culture, evil that Chicago and white spread to other places. Uh, What were the alternative? For instance, at Harvard, you get the sort of more... um, Collective uh, ways of organizing your workshop, for instance. It could be sharp, like in economic history at, at, at Harvard, for instance, but it would be different. Um, so if you if you both want to understand what that like, culture comes from and mm. what were the older culture that you can develop in a workshop, mm. you need some history at
2: some point. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you're not going to, the data you get on difference in treatment yeah. are, are going to help you see that that's the culture but in themselves, they're not going to help you change the culture. Right, right,
0: right. Oh, Beatrice, this is so much fun to talk to you. Um, I hope that we can, can keep doing this. Um, this is really nice. Uh, I have just love uh, learning from you. Um, uh, I, I guess that that's the conclusion for this week, But but I really appreciate you giving me your time.
2: Thank you very much.